And uh, I, I don't know about you, but I was deeply moved by, by Chad, and Emily's, Chad and Emily's video and just talking about how, you can clap, that's good, yes. I'm just talking about the peace that, that uh, you know, today is, is Advent, we talked about peace, and, and uh, that's the week that we're, we're celebrating. So I thought we would take a, a week, or this Sunday, maybe divert a little bit from our usual chapter-by-chapter, verse-by-verse study, and just talk about some things that are at least near and dear to my heart, and hopefully they're near and dear to, to your heart. As we come to the end of the year, if you're like me, I tend to evaluate the, the past year. And if, if you're like me, you know, we, we have a bunch of kids. And so there's so many things that are tugging at us, they're pulling at us in all different types of directions. And, um, you know, life can become very harried and very frenzied if we're not careful. And also, if you've been around Calvary for any length of time, you'll know that we hold that we live in a very unique generation. And our world has really changed, not in just the past few decades, but even in just the past few years. And so we, we live in a, a, a world that's changing very rapidly. And so that can, that can really take away the peace that, that uh, God would want us to walk in. So I, I thought today maybe we would talk about that a little bit today. And I want to use an illustration. I used this two years ago, so hopefully I, you're probably very familiar with it, but it's my sermon and I can do what I want. So, so, so two years ago I shared this, and this has become a metaphor for, for my life and for Cheryl's life. So there is, this, the story goes, see if I can do this here, heavy rocks. So, story goes, a management professor comes out in front of his class, young executives out there in the audience, and uh, he comes out and he sets down a large glass bowl just like this, and in front of his class, he begins to put some rocks in, just, just like this. Fills it up, putting them in, keeps putting them in, a few more, wasn't louder. I think we can get a few more in there. Let's get a few more in there. Okay. One more. We'll get one more in there. One more. we get one more in there. And so he says to his class, in this management class, he says, so is the jar full? To which they said, oh, of course it's full. He says, well, let's see. So then he reaches down and he pulls out another bin of some smaller rocks and he takes the rocks and he begins to pour the rocks in. Most of them went into the bowl, but not all. And he says, so is it full? Well, now they're catching on. They said, well, it's probably not full. So, well, let's try something else. So he pulls out a jar of sand, and he goes to the jar, and he begins to pour that in, and he fills that up, just like that. A little bit more. And most of it went into the jar. I like that. And then he turns to his class. He says, well, is it full now? Well, they say, well, we think so, but maybe not. He goes, well, that's good. And then he pulls out a jug of water. And he begins to pour the water in. And then he fills it up, just like this. And then he says to his class, now, is it full? To which everybody begins to agree that it's full. And so these are young management ex- students, they're young executives, they're highly motivated. And he says, so what is the moral of the story? And they say things like, well, the moral of the story is no matter 
how full you think your life is, there's always room for more. No matter how much you've got, you can always get more done. You can always do more. And he says, no, you missed it. You missed it. You see, the moral of the story isn't that you can always do more. The moral of the story is simply this. You have to put the big rocks in first or they won't go in at all. And so today, I want to talk to you about the big rocks, the big rocks. And if you don't put the big rocks in, as we say, you know, there's no way that you will get them in. This has become a metaphor of life for Cheryl and I. As a matter of fact, if I could show you a picture of our dining room table. We have on our dining room table, we have a jar. It's not all that ornate, but it's filled with rocks. And one of the things that we talk about is the big rocks of life. And we want to make sure in our lives that we put the big rocks in first. So in conversation at our house, there's lots of conversation about, is this a big rock? Is this something that we put in or is this something that we leave out? Because we know that if we don't put the big rocks in first, they're just not going to get in at all. Most people go through life and they never think through what are the big rocks in their life. And they don't think about intentionally making sure that those go in first, which is the reason why as we look around our society, we see marriages unraveling, we see uh, children rebelling, we see family disintegrating, because many people, most people do not stop and think about putting the big rocks in first. So I thought that I would take a few moments today to just talk about some things that hopefully as we come to the end of the year, as we look back, we can evaluate and say, did I put the big rocks in first? But if I didn't, before I begin 2016, it'd be good to decide what those big rocks are and make sure that we don't do in 2016 what we've done in 2015 if we haven't put the big rocks in today. So I want to talk today about the big things, the big rocks. Also, one of the observations that I, I would make in, in, uh, in the jar that we have on our table, one of the things that you'd notice, and even here, is that there's only so many big rocks that you can put in. There's only so many of the big things. In my life and in Cheryl's life, we have six big things in our life. I want to talk about three of those today. And so those are the big rocks that we put in. The other thing that I would say by way of observation is that those rocks don't get into the jar by themselves. They have to be intentionally put in there. They don't just happen. Many people live their lives as though it just happens. So as we begin this today, I want to say that this is probably the most basic teaching that I have ever given. It's not deep, it's just basic, but I think it's very applicable for all of us. So I want you to write this down. To get the big things in, I have to decide what the big things are. Again, there's only so many big things that we can put into our life, and that has to be done intentionally. And most people never consciously decide what are the big things in my life. There was a pamphlet that was, it's been in and out of print for many, many decades, and it's called The Tyranny of the Urgent. And it's, it's a pamphlet that goes through the life of Jesus, and it says that at the end of Jesus's life, not everyone was saved, not everyone was fed, and not everyone was healed. But when you look at Jesus's life, you notice that he was always at peace, and he was never in a hurry. But at the end of his life, not everybody was fed, healed, or saved, but at the end of his life, he was able to say, it is finished. And the reason for that is Jesus knew what his life was about and what it wasn't about. And so although not everyone was saved, fed, or healed, he, got, he accomplished the most important thing. He understood what the big rock or the big rocks were in his life. Does that make, make sense? One of the things that you find in life is it's the urgent things that scream the loudest when they're 
first ignored. The most important things in our life rarely scream the loudest when they're first ignored. But over a period of several years, you find that those important things, if we don't deal with those, we don't take care of those, then they begin to scream the loudest and our lives begin to unravel. So when we think about the big things in our life, and I want you to write this down, in 2016, when I set priorities, I'm going to call those the big things, it doesn't mean that I do more, but I do more of what matters most. I do more of what matters most. Again, at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, not everybody was fed, not everyone was saved, and everyone was healed, but he was able to say, it is finished. I love how Paul says there on your outline, with your pen in hand, Paul says, live life then with a due sense of responsibility, not as men who do not know the meaning of life, but as those who do. And then he says, and I want you to underline this, make the best use of your time. Don't be vague, but grasp firmly what you know to be the will of the Lord. I I love the um, motivational speaker, Zig Ziglar, who's recently passed away. And Zig used to say, how many of you ever heard of Zig Ziglar? He's awesome. But he, he used to say in your life, don't be a wandering generality, but be a meaningful specific. The idea is you have to put the big things in first. When Paul says, don't be vague, but make the most use of your time, the idea is you have to know what the big things are and focus in on those things. So when I come to the end of the year, I tend to evaluate. And I look back over the year and I say, did I put the big things in first? And if I didn't, then what am I going to do in the next year to make sure that those big things go in so that I don't wind up in a place in my life that I I don't want to be? So I want to share today some lessons that I've learned along the way, some lessons that Cheryl and I have learned along the way, and uh, some lessons that I'm learning, haven't got it all right. I've learned some things from some people who've got it right, and that's always great. And I've learned some things from people who haven't always got it right. I remember when we first moved here, we've been here now just over 18 years, and when we first moved here, I, I... I know most of the pastors in town. There was a pastor who was in town at that time. Great guy. He's no longer pastoring here. But we were scheduled to have lunch this one, one, one day, and um, about an hour before we were to meet for lunch, he calls me on the phone, and he says, Dan, I have to cancel lunch. I said, okay. He said, let me tell you what's going on. And he began to open up, and he shared. He said, you know, I've been a pastor for over 20 years. And I've been there for my congregation, congregations. He'd been in several places. And I'd really poured myself out for, the, for, for these people. He says, but here's what I didn't do. He says, now my daughter's in college. She's 22 and we have absolutely no relationship. She doesn't love God and she doesn't want to hang out with me. He says, I, I, I missed it. I missed it. But he says, she called me today and said, I want to go scuba diving. And he says, I'm going, I'm going. So the idea is maybe he missed it, but there came a point in his life where he said, I'm making a change and I'm going to do some things different. And so he made the change. So you can make the change. So as we, we come to the, as we, as we think through that, every one of us, as we go through life, if you, if, you went, if you went to college, you'll remember that you had to take psychology 101. Anybody take psychology 101? Most boring class in the world? Okay, so, so we took that. But you'll remember as we went through that class, there was this one guy, his name was Erickson. And Erickson was a psychologist, and, and he developed what is called the eight stages, the eight psychosocial stages of life. Now, hopefully that doesn't put you to sleep. But he looks at life, and he says, from the very beginning, you got this stage, this stage, this stage, this stage. So you come to the end of your life, and he called that stage, he called it integrity or despair. He says, when people come to the end of their life, they always look back 
over their life. And they begin to evaluate. It's just something that we do as we get older. And we find ourselves in one of two places, integrity or despair. For the person who has, comes to that place of integrity, they look back over their life and they go, you know, I, I did it right. I'm, I'm, I'm satisfied with my life. The other one who looks back over his life with just despair. I missed it and now it's over. I missed it. It's somebody who didn't put the big rocks in first and all they have at the end of their life is regret. And that is not for you. So I want to talk to you today for a few moments of what the big rocks are and how to put them in. This will just be a kind of a hodgepodge of things, but um, let's begin. So for me, and I believe for all of us, uh, the first big three, and we won't talk about all of them, but just, just three today. The big rock for me is my relationship with God. Go ahead and write that down. Should be your, your big rock too relationship with God. All Christians believe that Jesus is God. It's the dividing line between that which is Christian and that which is not Christian. So we believe that God came to the earth 2,000 years ago and dwelt among us. And as he dwelt among us, there's this great story in the Gospels of uh, Jesus as he was traveling around in, in his earthly ministry. He goes to the house of a man named Lazarus. Now, Lazarus has two sisters, Mary and Martha. And so as he's there in the house, we're all familiar with the story. I put it there in your outline. So you have Lazarus and you have Mary and Martha. And it says, Martha had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet. And I want you to underline seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted, underline distracted with all her preparations. And she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried, underline that, and bothered about so many things, underline that. But only one thing is necessary. Make sure you underline that. For Mary has chosen the good part, underline that, the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. So you have two people in this story at least in this paragraph, and now you have Martha. So you want to write this down. Martha was busy and it left her worried, bothered about so many things. Martha was busy and it left her worried about and bothered about so many things. And Jesus responds to her and says, you know, Martha, only one thing is really necessary, but it seems to be the one thing that, that uh, Martha hasn't put in. You know, it's an interesting thing about Martha is that Martha's not bad. Martha's not bad. She's a believer and she loves the Lord and she's serving, but she never came to the place where she put the big rock in first. And apparently in this story, from Jesus's perspective, the big rock is sitting at his feet, listening to his word. And did you notice the result? Martha's distracted. She's bothered. She's frustrated. And yet Mary, on the other hand, she's sitting there listening to the words of Jesus sitting at his feet, and she seems to be content. She seems to be at peace. And this reminds me of one of my life verses, and I hope it becomes one of your life verses too. But in Psalm 119, 165, there's this great verse. I put it on your outline. It simply says this. It begins by saying, great peace, underline that, have they which, the, which love thy law. That's the word of God. Great peace have they that love thy law or the word of God. And nothing shall, what's that word? Offend them, offend them. Have you noticed that we live in a society where everybody seems to be offended about just about everything? And here's what it means. The Bible teaches that there's something about God's word. When somebody is in God's word, it brings about great peace. As Mary sat at the feet of Jesus listening to his word, she had peace. Martha was a believer, but she was distracted. She was bothered. She was offended. And, And so as a believer... As a believer, there is something about being in God's word that brings great peace. 
And when I run into a believer who is easily distracted and bothered and worried about so many things and easily offended, it usually tells me that it's a believer, yes, a believer, but who's not been sitting at his feet listening to his word. So Jesus says to to Martha, he says, only one thing is really necessary. So then go ahead and write this down. Mary was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. And Jesus tells us that Mary chose the good part, the good part. She sat at his feet listening to his word. She's the one who has peace in the story. Martha was a believer, but she's stressed out. You know, the great thing is that they had Jesus in bodily form, but you and I have the same word of God, and it's right here. And every one of us has a copy. And there's something about spending time in his word, listening at his feet, that has an effect in the life of the believer. You want to make sure that you put that rock in first. So here's, here's how this works for me. Just, and if I can just share what, what uh, has worked for me in the past. First of all, I put there on your outline, uh, there's a, there's a web, website there, blueletterbible.org. Years ago, I decided to give God the first hour of my, my day. Now, whether it's 15 minutes, 10 minutes a day, whatever it is, you want to give God the first. You want to meet with the Lord at some point in your day. And, and you want to get into his word and let his word get into you. So what's worked for me? Well, there's a couple of things that that I do. First of all, again, there's a website there. What I love about Blue Letter Bible is you can read through any passage of the Bible and you wonder, what in the world does that word mean? And you can click on the word and it brings it up and it just, just amplifies. There's commentaries. There's things of that nature that you can just go through. It's very, very simple. Check that out when you get a chance. Another thing that that's been very helpful to me is uh, I, I, I love certain commentaries. My favorite commentary for devotional reading is this one. It's called John Corson's Life Application Commentary. And what I love about this is as you're reading through a passage of the Bible, the passage is there, and then you come to one of those places where you go, what in the world is that all about? Have you ever read the Bible and had a place like that? He just explains it and you go, oh, that's what that is, and then you're able to keep going. So it's a great thing. You can get this on Kindle or you can pick this up on Amazon. And then I have a prayer list that I, I pray through. But one of the other things that's been a real blessing in my life is just the promises of God. And over the years, I've collected a number of promises from God's word. And and what I'll do is every day I take a stack of these. It takes me about a week to go through my stack. And I'll go through the stack and I'll just read the verse. And as I read the verse, I'll read a promise. And all of a sudden, the way that I would say it is that the Lord quickens to me some situation that I'm facing. And I get to do this. I know my situation and my circumstance says this, but his word says this over here. And as I read that promise, I choose consciously to believe what he says. And it's been a great faith builder. It's also been a great way of seeing God show up in my life. If you would like to have some promises from God's word that you can use on your card today, just write the word promises. Make sure that we have your email address and we'll send that to you. But as I do that, it's, it's not difficult at all to spend an hour a day listening to his word. I want that big rock to be in my life because I want that peace. If I didn't spend that time with him listening to his word, seeing what's going on in the world right now, I would be freaked out. That makes sense? <laughs> because a lot's going on. 
but it's where I get my peace. People come up to Cheryl and they say, well, how do you, how do, you do it? You have 12 kids. How do you manage that? And she says, well, well, I pray. And they go, no, come on. How do you do that? No, that's really how it happens. And we saw in the video today, Emily takes time. She goes and she spends time with the Lord. One of the things that I see is I see Cheryl getting alone, spending time with the Lord. And that's where the strength comes from. Don't be like Martha, although she's a believer. She's worried. She's frustrated. She's frantic. She never puts the big rock in first. Mary, on the other hand, did what was most important, and she's not. She's peaceful. That makes sense? So in 2015, did I do that? And if I didn't do that, I want to make sure that in 2016 that I put that big rock in. Start somewhere. Then the second big rock in my life, and certainly for all of us, and you write it how it would be for you, but, but uh, my second rock is my relationship with Cheryl. You write your spouse's name. So my relationship with Cheryl. Cheryl my, my relationship with Cheryl. Uh, after 19 years of marriage, Sharon and I have learned a few things about being married. Uh, when you get married, marriage is like this garden. It's so beautiful and you're so in love. But because it's like a garden, if you don't maintain it on a regular basis, weeds happen. And what we've observed through the years is that some have gotten married and it's a beautiful thing, but five or six years of not maintaining and pulling the weeds, all of a sudden they come to the place and they say, I just, I'm just going to go get a new garden. Marriage is a beautiful thing, but it has to be maintained. And we've learned that. Weeds happen. So for a garden to stay beautiful, it has to be maintained. So my goal, and I want you to write this down, is that when the kids are gone, I still want to be in love with Cheryl. And you can write your spouse's name. When the kids are gone, I still want to be in love with Cheryl. And I realize, we've come to realize that that's not going to happen by accident. That's going to be something that we do intentionally. When... um, this is the holidays, and so we have family around that we don't always see, but, but um, my family tree takes a lot of explaining. As our kids go, so why do I have five grandfathers? Or, you know, and how did all this happen, and how are we related to this one, and why this one? And uh, you know, Cheryl's family is pretty much the same way. And so we didn't come from a very solid background that says, this is how you do marriage. If anything, we, we came from a background that says, this is how you do divorce. And so we didn't want to wind up in that place. So we realized that we'd have to be intentional about maintaining this garden. When we, we got married, we realized what we didn't want in marriage. But knowing what you don't want isn't the same thing as knowing what you do want. So we had to learn how to be married And fortunately for us, God sent a number of great teachers and examples to teach us how you do marriage. But we realized that marriage is a big rock, and it needs to be intentionally put in there and maintained. I I love this passage that I put on your outline, and I could have chosen any of 100. I put this one on because it's the most fun. So here we go. Uh, There with your pen in hand. Guys especially, you're going to want this one. It says, let your fountain be blessed. Underline blessed. And rejoice, underline the word rejoice, in the wife of your youth. And then it goes on, it says, be exhilarated always with her love. Now here's what you need to know. In that passage, I left a line out. You need to go home and look up that line and see what it really says. And guys, I want you to do what the word of God says. You do that. And then when your wife says, what are you doing? You say, I'm just being a godly man, just doing what the book says. So you got to look that verse up. You'll be glad that you did. (laughs) But he uses the word blessed and exhilarated and rejoiced. You know, from God's perspective, he thought he designed marriage to be a blessing. It's designed to be a joy. It's not designed to be a drudgery. So as I look at that, 
God's design was for marriage to be a, a, a joy, a special thing. So in that, can I tell you two lessons that I've learned from God very, very specifically about marriage? And as I say this, there are two times where God spoke to me. Now, God doesn't speak to me or anything like that, you know, on a regular basis, but there's been a couple of times where God has specifically spoken to me. And uh, I want to just share two of those with you. Uh, One time when uh, Cheryl and I first got married, both of these were when we first got married, that, you know, God has a sense of humor and he puts opposites together. And uh, so what he did was when Cheryl and I got married, we, we're, we found out how very different we were on some things. For instance, um, I'm a morning person. I get up at five. If I sleep in till six, I feel like I've blown the day. Cheryl, on the other hand, she's a night owl. So she loves to stay up and read and write and pray. And in the quietness of the night, she gets to do some things because, you know, everything's quiet. And when we first got married, that just drove me nuts. And I decided I was going to fix her. I was going to help her become a morning person because morning people are just better. You know, <laughs> just, you know, we, we get up, we get going, that sort of thing. And I'll never forget, I'm, I'm there in my quiet time with the Lord, first big rock, and I'm praying, and I'm saying, Lord, help me fix this woman. She's, she's, a, she's a night owl. She needs to be a morning person. And I'm praying about how we can fix her. And the Lord very, very lovingly spoke to me, and he says, you know what? She is. She's a night owl. And you know why? Because I designed her that way. And she's being exactly who I designed her to be. And so here's the deal, Dan. I didn't call you to fix her. Go ahead and write this down. Here's what he told me. He says, my job, I'm called to love her and not fix her. Called to love her and not fix her. And when he told me that, that was so freeing. Because she's just being who it is that God's called her to be. And she loves Jesus, and I love Jesus, and I came to realize that if Jesus wanted to fix her, that's his job. My job is just to love her and let her be who it is that God's called her to be. You ever met somebody who's trying to fix their spouse? Has that ever worked in the history of the universe, even once? Not one time. God's called us to love them, not fix them. They are his. Now, the second thing that happened... God spoke to me, and uh, it was in the midst of that, and uh, God said this, and I want you to write this down, and I'll unpack it. God let me know in no uncertain terms that I married his little girl. I married his little girl. Now, ladies, you can write down his little boy. And uh, he's especially fond of her. One of our favorite movies at our house is called Father of the Bride. Have you seen Father of the Bride? Yeah, you should. If you haven't, you're like in sin, but you should. So it's this great, it's this great movie. Steve Martin is the dad, and his daughter comes home from this trip to, you know, from Europe, and she sits down, and she's an adult, and she says, Dad, I've, I've met a man, and we're going to get married. And then you see it through Steve Martin's eyes. He says, what did you say? And uh, you look through Steve Martin's eyes, and you see this five-year-old little girl, and she says, Dad, I've met a man and we're going to get married. This is a great, great show. Isn't that how it works, guys? I mean, we see our daughters very, very differently. That they're, they're, they're always that little girl, which is why, you know, a guy comes over to meet your daughter, we bring out the gun collection, right? Welcome, you touch her, I'll kill you, okay? I don't mind going to prison, but, you know, that's how it is. But when, when your son brings home 
a girl, do we ever say, you break his heart, I'll kill you? We don't do that because daughters are very, very special. You know where we get that from? We're created in the image of God. We're created in the image of God. And there's something about daughters. Now, I believe there's something about sons too. But God spoke to me and says, Dan, you married my little girl. You see her as an adult, but I see her as my little girl. And you hurt my little girl. It's not going to go well. Which is why Peter wrote there on your outline, he said, you husbands, this is good advice, live with your wives in an understanding way so that your prayers will not be hindered. I'm convinced that if I don't treat his little girl the way that he wants me to, he takes it very personal. And uh, he says, your prayers will be hindered. What that means is God is no longer speaking to you. So be careful how you treat his little girl. Does that make sense? And so you are married to his little girl. You're married to his little boy. So if I'm going to be married to his little girl, what I need to do, I want to make sure that I put this big rock in first. And so the way that I do that, I want you to write this down. I want to prioritize my marriage on my calendar, not just in my heart. Not just in my heart. If you're single here today. So so Sierra and I plan. We we have to sit down. We have 11 kids at home, 12 all total. We have to live by a schedule. We're going to do this, this, this. And then that's how we have to do that. If you're single here today, there's a verse that I will tell you every time I get the opportunity to tell you. And it's simply this. It comes from Proverbs there in your outline. It says, she does him good and not evil all the days of her life. It could be written to a guy. If it was written to a guy, it would say, he does her good and not evil all the days of his life. And here's what this means. It means that right now you might be single, but if you're to keep this verse, you need to do your future spouse good all the days of your life, not just when you meet them. Do them good now. Ask yourself this past year, Did you put the big rock in of being faithful to your future spouse this year and doing him good, doing her good all the days of your life? If you didn't, if you you haven't, then decide today to make a change. Do your spouse good all the days of your life, even before you meet them. And then I love this other verse uh, there from Titus. It just says, older women train the younger women to love their husbands and children. You know, there's just something about seeing a couple that's gone the distance 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and, and they have so much to share. How do you, how do you if, if that's you and you've had an effective marriage, we need those role models because we live in a generation where we just do not know how to do marriage. And so you need to share what you know. So how did I do last year? I need to evaluate, make sure that I put that big rock in. And then number three, I think we have just a couple of moments. Number three, my relationship with my family. My relationship with my family. That's a big rock. That's a big rock. In Cheryl's and my family growing up, we grew up in an environment where we have almost no shared common experiences with our siblings. So uh, two years ago, my sister calls me, and there's a crisis in the family, and she says, you know, we never talk unless there's a crisis. And the reason for that is growing up, we, we had no shared common experience there's almost no connection whatsoever. Now, I love her. She loves me. If there was a crisis, we'd drop everything and go. But we never even think to communicate. We, 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 just, we, have, we don't have that family background where that was ever important. In Cheryl's side of the family, she has a brother and sister. And our children have first cousins that they've never even met. And the reason being is in the last generation... Nobody stopped to think about if we parent and we do family like this, what's this going to look like in the next generation? 
what it looks like in the next generation is that we have almost no connection with our family or cousins or anything like that. So we didn't want to do that. We didn't want to do that. And so we have a goal. Here's our goal. Write this down. When our kids are old enough to not be with us, they would still want to be together. So we want to parent with that in mind. We want our kids certainly to be with us when they don't have to be as they grow up. But if something happens to Cheryl and I, we want them to have strong relationships so that they would want to be together, that it would be the first thing on their mind and not an afterthought getting together as a family. So let me give you two ways that we try to do this. And these are not typically the two ways that, that most people think about, but, but we found them to be very, very helpful. First of all, one of the things that we've learned there in your outline, you want to write this down, that the spiritual condition of my family is my responsibility. It's my responsibility. That comes from the Old Testament. And I want you to underline as I read through this, the words you and your, as we travel through this. So with your pen in hand, God is speaking and he says, these words, which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Whose responsibility is it to make sure that it's passed on to the next generation? Did you notice that it doesn't say it's the pastor's responsibility? It doesn't say it's the youth pastor's responsibility. It's our responsibility. It says, and here's the method. The words that I give you, you put those on your heart, and then you talk about them. You talk about only three times. When you sit down, you rise up, and you lie down. Other than that, you don't have to talk about it. Sit down, rise up, walk by the way. So that, that's, the, that's the idea. Here's what this means in our family. We're having a lot of spiritual conversations. Lots of spiritual conversations. We stop. We say it's, we're going to have family devotions. We'll stop. We'll pray together as a family. It's nothing weird. It's just we just pray. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we don't. We pray together as a family. We talk about the Lord. We talk about the Word. We, it's not a, a controlling thing. It's just what we've learned is whatever it is, the parents are passionate about the kids are going to catch that fire. So parents, if you're passionate about football, you're going to raise some children who are passionate about football. But if you're passionate about the Lord, and you're passionate about his word, you're going to raise some kids that are passionate about that. My family's spiritual maturity is my responsibility. Don't miss that big rock. So many believers have missed that and push that off to somebody else, and the result they get is not something that they're satisfied with. Does that make sense? Another thing that, that we've learned with our kids is that traditions make memories. Write that down. God is into traditions. Um, there in your outline, there's this great tradition in uh, the book of John, in the life of Jesus. It says, at that time, I want you to underline, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple. So Jesus is at this feast. It's a non-biblical feast. The Bible never speaks of it. But it's this great tradition that they have in Israel. And it's in winter, December. What great tradition do the Jewish people celebrate in December? Hanukkah. He's there celebrating Hanukkah. So some theologians suggest that Jesus did, in fact, put on his yarmulke and celebrated Hanukkah. 
I think there's a song or something. I... It's not even part of the Bible. It's just a great tradition. It's just a great tradition. If you were to go online and you were to say, and you were to type in um, the importance of traditions in family, you'd come up with 50 different, different articles. I'm going to read you just two paragraphs real quick. The importance of traditions in family. Here's what they say. Strengthen, it strengthens the family bond. Researchers have consistently found that families that engage in frequent traditions report stronger connection and unity than families that haven't established rituals together. There's something about the rituals, the families, the traditions together. Cheryl and I grew up in families that had no traditions whatsoever. Then it goes on, it says, and they create lasting memories. In her book, Ask the Children, Ellen Galinsky, co-founder of Families and Work Institute, describes a survey in which she asked children what they would remember most about their childhood. Most of the kids responded by talking about simple, everyday traditions like family dinners, holiday get-togethers, and bedtime stories. Parents, it's so important to develop those traditions in your family. In our family... We have a couple of traditions. From Thanksgiving to New Year's, we play Christmas music 24 hours a day. January 1st, my kids are so sick of Christmas. We don't do it for another year, but they look forward to it all year long. On Christmas morning, we have cinnamon buns. Whether we like them or not, we have them. They're just part of the tradition, and we look forward to that. You've got to have some traditions. They build those family memories. I'm going to stop right there. So the question is, how did I do this past year? Am I closer with my family? Did I build into my family a closer family unit? Did I take them spiritually in the direction they needed to be? Did I build those, those traditions into their life? The goal is this there at the end of your outline. It just says, the Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. And what I've learned is that's done intentionally by making sure I put the big rocks in first. Some rocks aren't going to be put in because... They're not the big rocks, but the big ones are going to go in first. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this congregation, and thank you for their uh, graciousness and and listening today, and just uh, the joy of getting to see our children sing. I pray your blessing on each and every one of us as we end this year. I pray that you'd help us to evaluate the previous year and make some conscious decisions about the new year and make sure that we're putting the right things in, the big things first, before everything else gets crowded in and the big things get pushed out. Help us to represent you well. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people said. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.